This is Rebel Radio. Welcome to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Marine van der Geer, and today we are talking about transforming the global financial system. This episode is a first for us, a highly overdue collaboration between the Extinction Rebellion podcast and Rebel Radio. At Rebel Radio, we've already used a fair few podcasts as material on the shows, but this is the first time we are transforming a radio show into a podcast. Yay! I hope you will enjoy it. Rebel Radio hosts and producers Sue Wheat and Seb O'Connell did a brilliant show on transforming the global financial system, exploring things that previously seemed impossible and how they have recently become thinkable. In this case, they explored the possibility of an alternative economic future and how that might cross over with an alternative ecological future. Seb and Sue spoke with Anne Pettifor, a South African political economist who has just written The Case for the Green New Deal. She correctly predicted the economic crisis which started in 2007. She focuses on global financial and economic systems, on money, monetary policy and on the UK economy as well. Then Seven Sue also invited filmmakers and creators of The Bank Job, Hilary Powell and Dan Adelstein. The Bank Job is not just a film, it's also a documentary, but it's also a whole project that Dan and Hilary are working on with a team from their local community. It's a hack and heist on the financial system operating out of HSCB the Ho Street Central Bank in Walthamstow, London. They're printing their own art cash to raise the money to support local causes and cancel £1.2 million of local debt. The bank has become a bit of a hub of economic education and action, and they will talk more about this brilliant project, which Anne Pettifor also visited. Seb and Sue started things off by asking Anne all about her work and what the future holds for us. Let's have a listen. This is Rebel Radio. Stay tuned for change. We're here with Anne Pettifer, political economist and author of The Green New Deal, and Dan Edelston and Hilary Powell, artists and filmmakers exposing the toxic debt system. And um, some of our listeners might remember the Jubilee 2000 campaign, which you spearheaded and called for fair and just debt cancellation for 35 of the world's poorest countries. Yeah. And you had a few people behind that movement like Bob Geldof, Bono, Muhammad Ali, the Pope, to name a few, along with uh, millions of others, which saw the write-off of $100 billion worth of debt in the global south. Um, one of the most successful campaigns and truly extraordinary campaigns ever. Uh, and now you're writing about the Green New Deal, which is a way of reimagining the economy to protect life on Earth. Indeed, yes. Thank you for that introduction and those kind words. I, um, I had a, an email uh, a week or so ago from a man inside the International Monetary Fund And he said, was I aware that poor countries were becoming heavily indebted again? And would I please restart the campaign? (laughs) I thought, whoa, hang on, you know. We worked so hard to write off debts. But the thing we failed to do was to transform the system. So naturally, you know, what happened was we cleared about 100 
billion of debt owed by 30 of the poorest countries, which meant that they had clean balance sheets. You know, they, were, they no longer had debts. Mm. And this was an immensely attractive to the world's creditors. They all piled in and said, let's lend you some more money because you're, you know, you're now stable and you're now sustainable. So they've got themselves back into that situation or they haven't, they haven't got themselves. The system has got them back into a situation of high levels of debt. Indeed, but the biggest problem isn't the sovereign debt of the poorest countries. The very biggest problem is the debt of the big corporations. They borrowed crazy money after the crisis, the great financial crisis of 2007-9, and now they are the problem. Uh, They are likely to default. They include, for example, all those fracking companies in the U.S. that started up and borrowed crazy money thinking that they were going to be there forever and that the oil price was going to rise forever. And, of course, the oil prices collapsed and even gone negative on one day. And it's clear, even though Mr. Trump will do everything possible to bail out his pals in that sector, nevertheless, many, many of them are going to go bust. So um, the key thing I, I, I'd like to talk about is that, you know, we're part of an international system. And I, I was so frustrated during the Corbyn election campaign by the left, in a sense, because the left doesn't think in terms of the total system things about what's going on here at home. And so right now, for example, there's a big campaign to get Richard Branson to pay some taxes. And people go around and say, what a terrible guy he is, how awful he is, how selfish he is, because he doesn't pay taxes. But the minute his businesses are under threat, he rushes to the taxpayer for a bailout. Now, the thing is, there's no question that he may well be an unpleasant person. I have no idea. I don't know him. But really, the system not only enables him to not pay taxes, it encourages him to pay taxes. And if we're not going to change the system, we're never going to get him to pay taxes. And that's my frustration with so many people who who really get angry about this. It's as if you were saying, oh, you think apartheid is wicked, and you think that people who are promoting apartheid are racists and, and so on and bad. But you never demand that the law should be changed so that the ANC can come to power and that the law should be changed so that Mandela can be freed. And if you don't argue for those legal structural changes, then no matter how bad or unpleasant or awful uh, apartheid is, nothing is going to change. And I I think that's what I really want to say here today is that um, the system has been really bad in this last few weeks. And I don't know if I've got time to just take you through that, Seb. Can I do that quickly? Please, yes, go ahead. So the point is this, that the minute the the sort of pandemic took hold in the West, not when it was in China, but in the West, creditors, bankers, speculators, and investors took their money and just stampeded out of poor countries. They left the countries of the South. They left emerging markets like Argentina, Brazil, Turkey, and they flooded into New York, into the dollar. And that's, again, because the system is designed to allow investors, creditors, and speculators to do what they like, to follow their every whim. The system is designed to meet their needs to shift money very, very quickly if they want to, basically. It's not designed 
to care about the people of, for example, my home country, South Africa, who are now facing a plague, you know, facing a pandemic. It's not designed for that. No, that's not what it's for. It's for looking after investors, speculators, and creditors. So they've all rushed to the dollar. The dollar's risen in value. South African currency fell dramatically. That strengthens the dollar, right, for the U.S., makes imports cheaper and so on. But for poor countries, it meant that imports of pharmaceuticals and all the kit that they need to deal with this pandemic were going to become expensive. They wanted to borrow, but then the Western uh, rating agencies moved into town and said, oh, investors have left your town, so we're going to downgrade you. So the minute they were downgraded, even more pension fund money had to leave and um, that raised their borrowing cost and the interest rates on those bor- uh, on the borrowing. So, you know, they were left in this mess. Um, and now I'm not saying that their economies were perfect. I'm not saying the South African economy was perfect. But it is a poor country, and it has millions and millions of poor unemployed people crushed together, you know, informal housing, overcrowded informal housing, where the plague, where the pandemic is going to hurt the most. And they have to deal with that. And I have to say, I'm quite proud of the way in which President Ramaphosa and and South African government have managed so far. Just shows you the injustice of the system. Now, if we had a climate crisis tomorrow, and we are going to have a very severe climate crisis, and if investors do exactly the same thing again, then the very countries, we know that the the poorest countries, the most marginalised countries are going to be the worst hit by a climate breakdown then once again money will flood out and uh, they'll be left abandoned. So this is why I think it's so important for us to think about the system and not just about big bad guys like Richard Branson. The whole concept of system change is something yeah. that, you know, has, has, is a, it's a phrase, isn't it, that's sort of um, quite common now amongst the environmental movement. Yeah. And obviously we've got a system that has to change. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to bring Dan and Hillary in here because you've been looking at system change as well, haven't you, about the financial system, but in a completely different way. And I just wondered if you could just introduce a bit about the bank job and, and how you set up that project and why and, and what it's all about. It has been a, a long journey and it kind of began with the revelation coming from reading and Dan kind of went off to America to meet Andrew Ross and the strike debt movement, reading David Graeber's book, The First Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and kind of falling down the rabbit hole of this knowledge and this idea that we are asking the question at that point, are we living in a creditocracy where um, credit is wrapped around kind of basic needs and debt is having a massive impact on our ability to participate in our societies and in our democracies, how they're being eroded by debt fueled economic forces. So for us, this was kind of these moments of illuminating knowledge. And it was really a question of how do we act on that and kind of share our new knowledge with others in a way that's empowering and as artists and filmmakers that can kind of use our special set of skills (laughs) to kind of pull off a, a, a heist on the system and it didn't come quickly in in the way that we formed it but we ended up by deciding to give ourselves really the power of central banks and the ability to print money 
at will and use it for a productive uses in our society, but on this kind of micro scale. So we're in Walthamstow and we managed to get hold of a defunct bank kind of operating in the kind of skeleton of a, of a financial system, these high street banks that have all been vacated across the country and set up our own money printing operation. But the money that we were printing, instead of the queen and famous people, featured local people that were really fighting the immediate fallout of an unjust economic system, food banks, homeless kitchens, youth projects, and um, primary schools suffering from austerity. And the aim was to sell our money as art, to raise the kind of sterling, to be able to do our own debt write-off in the style of strike debt initially, and then we obviously met the Jubilee Debt Campaign, heard about Jubilee 2000 and kind of all of this had come into kind of informed this idea. And we raised 40,000 from selling the art and bought 1.2 million of local debt. But I think key to that was that the whole process of raising the money was an act of education, talking about using the bank as a hub of economic kind of sharing knowledge and that the act of debt write-off wasn't a kind of act of poor relief, which um, Jonna Montgomery also talks about in her book, The Case for Should We Abolish Household Debt? It was a kind of act of solidarity, but also a kind of lightning rod into illuminating the kind of murky world and of illegitimate debt. And now we're finishing a feature film and a book as kind of ways of extending this process further. I've probably gone waffling off at the end. That was was good. I thought that was really succinct. I I just want to accentuate to to listeners out there just how beautiful your project has been. And I know, Anne, you've you've come to Walthamstow, haven't you, and spoken and seen the money that they printed on old-fashioned presses. And it was just fantastic, wasn't it? I loved the way they approached the Bank of England and asked the Bank of England if they could have old banknotes, which you normally get trashed. And the Bank of England handed over all these old trashed banknotes. And Hillary, I was there when she was putting it through all kinds of processes, through water and so on, to mesh and re-merge them into new kinds of paper and then used that paper to create beautiful works of art which are hanging up on my wall I'm proud to say I actually it reminds me and I think we actually owe you um a hundred coin from the remnants of the blown up van the the yield on the bond which you bought uh, is is overdue so we we are in danger actually of defaulting Uh (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and as a central bank of course one doesn't want to be seen to be in default (laughs) No, but lovely. And what was wonderful was the Financial Times recognised how, what a breakthrough and how how meaningful your project was, you know, and wanted to write about it. And they had um, Mr. Sanbu, who's one of their very senior columnists, come along to film what you were doing. I was just very proud of you both. I thought it was amazing. In the in the film, because we we've been on the um, we've had an early morning editing session through Zoom this morning and. Um, We've got Martin Wolf in the film as well, alongside you, actually, Anne. Oh, right. And, and John arguing. Montgomery. Or talking, yeah. about, talking about your, the Jubilee, because we, we tried to, this is just something to extrapolate what Hill was saying. We sort of see our own sort of um, debt write-off efforts as a kind of mini Jubilee, you know, as a kind of metaphorical yeah. Jubilee, which we argue through, because the film it effectively is a, a kind of polemical essay in a way, 
which is trying to advocate for a larger personal debt write-off across Britain as, mm. as one factor. And again, this picks up on your point, Anne, that you made, which is that it's absolutely no use to have a, a debt jubilee unless you change the structures which mm. are pushing people into debt in the first place. So we're not trying to argue that jubilee is a magical bullet, as some people yeah. say, or, or, you know, it's part of a raft of measures that, yeah, that we feel w- would be needed to create a just economy. Yeah, sorry, I'm always struck by our history, you know. I mean, if you read Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens' father went to jail for not paying his debts. And there was very small debt. I, I can't remember how much, but it wasn't a lot. And Charles, as a boy, had to go and visit his dad in jail. And after that, you know, in the 18th, 19th century, economists began to see that was irrational. It was irrational to make people pay who can't pay. And and it's especially irrational if they've had money foisted on them by loan sharks, for example, which are the sort of people that hang around Walthamstow and target the poor. And so we introduced the whole concept of bankruptcy, which is that one accepts at a certain point that the debt will not be paid, and rather than putting people into jail and letting them starve to death and their families starve to death, economists and, and politicians realized, well, it's better to resolve that crisis, to write off the debts, to clean the slate and to start again, put the person back onto the high street so they can get a job and work and the economy can survive and can thrive. So the, the, the issue of bankruptcy is at one level incredibly progressive. At another level, we have a real problem where creditors don't want customers to go into bankruptcy because they don't want to lose their money. And they lobby the government. They do all kinds of things to to absolutely insist that every last drop is paid. And and that's that's crazy because we know that when debts grow up, build up too high, too high a level, there's only four ways of dealing with them. You can either have a jubilee and say, look, it's never going to pay. That's fine. Let's write them off. You can either default without any discussion with your creditors, and that's chaotic. You can inflate away the debt, and that's what, for example, in Germany they did during the Weimar era. They inflated away their domestic debt. But the very best way to deal with debt is to create jobs and enable people to earn income and enable them to deal with their obligations, basically, But that never occurs to the creditocracy. And I think Hillary is quite right to use that word because the government is run and the world is run by the creditocracy. They decide on all this. Uh, You know, the IMF is an institution that's there to protect the interests of creditors, the world's creditors. There is no international bankruptcy process for poor countries, for example. They get bled to death, if you like, of of their resources in order to repay creditors. So this this whole idea of yeah jubilee or default or or writing off or inflating you know this is why every central bank has as its central mandate the demand that there should be no inflation and um, at times you know inflation is a good thing it's a necessary thing but no no the bank says so you know Germany yesterday that constitutional court argued that what the ECB was doing and helping to bail out countries like Italy and Greece was to threaten inflation. And of course, right now we have no inflation. We have a real risk of deflation. 
But the reason why that mandate belongs to the central banks is because that inflation, because inflation erodes the value of the debt over time, and creditors won't have that. They're not going to allow anybody to erode the value of their debt. So that's why it's really important to change central bank mandates and to say, no, your task is really to create full employment, to ensure that the economy prospers, so that people don't have to borrow crazy money to survive. They don't have to go to the loan sharks just to get their kids a Christmas present and that kind of nonsense, you know. But that, that's not a mandate. That's not the central bank mandate to create jobs and, and prosperity. I've got a thing at the moment about the dollar, because after the war, uh, when we were setting up the Bretton Woods systems, the Americans insisted that rather than having an independent currency and an independent central bank that would work between countries and help them to settle their transactions fairly, no, no, we should have the United States Federal Reserve and the dollar should be the world's reserve currency. And at that point, the United States was really, really powerful and people had no choice really because Europe had gone to war and so on. But today it is such an unfair system. So as a result, you know, the Americans, the United States can now effectively just print dollars and go shopping, essentially. That's what the Americans do, and they go shopping in China. They no longer make anything of importance to the United States, including drugs, all the pharmaceuticals they need for this crisis they import from China. So they get others to do all the work, and they go shopping, and there's an endless supply of dollars. So it's a really privileged position to have if you are providing the world's reserve currency especially at the moment when every, every country's currency in the world has been weakened by the pandemic, the dollar has been strengthened. Is it reasonable to suggest that globalisation has driven climate breakdown and the spread of the virus across borders? And what major changes need to be called for now to restore balance, which also recognise this? So... Um, yeah, it's a very good question, Seb, and it's really the most important one. And the trouble is it's quite long and complex. But, um, I mean, if we just look at our history, uh, after you know, we had globalization before the Second World War, and the system was called the gold standard at the time. But it's pretty much the same system as we are enduring at the moment. It was a system whereby the bankers, Wall Street essentially, determined government policy, determined what the exchange rate of the, the country would be, what the interest rate of that country would be, whether or not capital would enter or leave, would be invested in or not be invested in that country. And that system was a globalized system. It wasn't as global, in some respects, it was more globalized than and today. But in other respects, the scale of globalization today is much bigger. And the problem with that was in the 1920s and 30s, the system made the world unstable. It made the world deeply unequal and it led to political tensions between countries as well. And then, of course, it all led to fascism and a, a Second World War. And after the war, you know, Roosevelt and a, a bunch of economists at the Bretton Woods uh, Conference decided we're not going to do this again. We're now going to manage the financial system. We're going to make it servant to the real economy. And Roosevelt had to do that because he had two crises when he came to power. One was very high unemployment and a collapsed economy. And the other one was the Dust Bowl. 
They had a major environmental crisis they had to deal with. People were migrating in their millions out of whole states, in whole swathes of the United States. And the Grapes of Wrath is the story of what happened. And so what was he going to do? He had to raise money, he had to raise finance to plant. They planted three billion trees, by the way. And to employ people, where was the money going to come from? Wall Street wasn't going to provide the money. Or if they did provide the money, they were going to provide it at very high rates of interest. And for me, this is why it's such a climate issue. Because it, when the rate of interest is high on any loan, you have to extract more labor and you have to extract more assets from the earth to repay this mathematically rising rate of interest that is also compounding ultimately when when companies default and that's why it's so for me the rate of interest is at the heart of the climate issue right you know brazil has to strip her forests to earn dollars to pay her debts right we have to fish the seas to earn dollars to pay debts and even to make purchases so so Roosevelt said ah oh, no and on the night of his inauguration and this is what was so wonderful that he was a politically courageous president on the night of his inauguration, he announced that he, the gold standard was going to be dismantled. And he demanded, it was based on gold, and he demanded that all the banks hand over their gold the next day. And his advisors said to him, well, you can't do that. It's a Sunday. It's a holy day. So he said, okay, we'll do it on Monday. And everybody talks about the bank holiday he brought he introduced on the, that Monday as his way of saving the banks. He wasn't saving the banks. He was saving the economy. He demanded that they hand over their gold. And interestingly, even all the, Amer the American individual people that held gold handed it over. What that meant was that Roosevelt had put an, a democratically elected government in the driving seat of the economy and not Wall Street. He kicked Wall Street out and said, you're not driving the economy any longer. And I'm telling you so. Now, the United States was a big, powerful economy and, and he was a strong political leader because um, I think political leadership is really important. When you think about Greece... Greece today is a victim to the U European Central Bank. It doesn't have its own central bank. That's the design. The design is for those countries not to be able to draw on their central bank in the way we are able to draw on the Bank of England. It's designed to prevent them from doing that because the private sector wants to decide whether or not Greece gets loans or not. Right? The private, Wall Street, the City of London and Frankfurt are in the driving seat of the European economy. And that's why it's going to fail, right? Anyway, so for me, the New Deal is about echoing what Roosevelt said and did, because he then was able to tackle an environmental crisis. He was able to manage the exchange rate. He was able to use the central bank and the treasury to manage the rate of interest uh, with the advice of Keynes. Um, and he was able to uh, manage the flows of capital across borders. So that system was put in place, a very similar system was put in place 1945 to 71, and the bankers hated it. They hated it. And from day one, they began to lobby to have it changed. And after 1971, Nixon unilaterally dismantled the Bretton Woods system in 1971. And after that, deregulation, liberalization became so-called, I, I, I hate the word liberalization. It's as if they're liberalizing the finance sector. They weren't liberalizing. They were empowering the finance sector. And now the world is run by the bankers again. So for me, 
you know, and it has to do, the climate thing has to do with the rate of interest. And we really have to understand that. We really have to understand that even when the rate of interest is at 4%, which we may think is low, in real terms, if you have to, you know, every year extract another 4% to pay your debts, you actually have to get labor to work, you know, seven days a week. You have to have people working long hours. You have to churn up the environment in order to grow more stuff. You have to grow the economy to expand the economy at the same rate as your debt has expanded. So the imperative for growth is inherent in the financial arrangements that we live under. You know, that's the key point about the link between finance and the climate. So some might say that if you decrease globalization, that will actually make the world more tribal, less accepting, and then we'll generally be worse off. Um, but in your book, you talk about the need for countries to become more self-sufficient. So can you clarify what you mean by that? So I think the thing we really all have to understand is that a more sustainable economy is not going to be a globalized economy. A more sustainable economy is going to be self-sufficient economies. It's going to be made up self-sufficient economies and that that won't mean that they can't be international coordination and cooperation indeed it's absolutely vital one of the striking things about globalization and about those who were opposed to it and if you think of donald trump he he presents himself as anti-globalization except when it comes to building golf courses in ireland then he's pro-globalization but he presents himself as building walls against the Mexicans and the Chinese and so on and so forth. But come the crunch, he's actually pro-globalization. So, I mean, what we're seeing is that this system, so, so, so Donald Trump is a nationalist at heart, and we've seen the rise of nationalisms in Brazil, in the United States, in India, in Hungary, in the Philippines, wherever. Uh, where, where you're getting authoritarian nationalist leaders saying, we're going to protect our population, our people, from, this, from market forces, essentially. And they pretend to, they don't. Bolsonaro is clearly unconcerned about the security of these people. But nevertheless, that is the, the, the platform on which... And at the same time, they refuse to work and to coordinate internationally. So the United States and Britain will not work with the Europeans and will not work with the World Health Organization which was a set up to, to establish these international, international coordinating policies so that when we had a crisis, we could deal with it. So for me, a green economy is going to have to be much more sustainable, much more self-sufficient, while at the same time, very international in the sense of international and coordinating and cooperative, the very opposite of nationalism. So it's, it's, this is a tricky point to make, but this is what I think we have to come to understand that the global system is going to have to be transformed and is being transformed as we speak. So um, I wondered whether we could, uh, I could ask all three of you to give us what you, you know, you've, you've all got so much experience on uh, researching the financial system, researching how it fits in with the climate and ecological crisis but what are, what are the real nubs for you that you just think, okay, this has to happen? You know, what is it that we need to do within the next few years to just make things change? Can, can I ask Hilary or, or Dan to start and then we'll bring Anne back in again? 
Well, I think when Anne came to the bank, and we, we probably quoted this in writing as well, it was the idea that with the Jubilee, people started understanding what was going on when things were explained to them. It was like, once people know, like, boy, do they act. And I think that particularly now, I think, and our role as storytellers and artists is challenging these really dominant narratives that are still circulating that have to be kind of contested publicly. The kind of idea now that, you know, is emerging within the pandemic of austerity, of the need for more um, cuts because we have to, you know, pay off our, our debts. This has to be paid for by somewhere. And the kind of general lack of knowledge about how money, how the economic system works and money works, allows like um, these politicians to get away with these narratives that perpetuated in the media, you know, that, that shoot down any kind of progressive ideas that were coming from the Labour Party or, you know, progressive parties about spending. It's just like, oh my God, all of those millions, where are they coming from? There is no magic money tree. And the idea that there's a forest of magic money trees growing yeah. in private grounds somewhere that are not allowed for the rest of us. Hillary is absolutely right. The one, the really big thing we have to do is education and, and awareness. And we know that, and, and I always give my experience of the anti-apartheid movement. You know, I didn't believe for a moment that apartheid could be dismantled because the South African government had massive military backing and had a really efficient secret service. And I never believed for a moment that 94, 1994 could happen. So and what that was is a result of everybody campaigning and arguing and explaining and, and discrediting and so on. So what Hillary says is really important. But I want to say this, that for me, the real imperative is that we have to seize political power. And if I may say, we all have to get more political than we've been. You know, many of us are really reluctant to join political parties you find politics unpleasant, which it is, and dishonest often, and and politicians egregious on the whole. But really, you know, the right don't hesitate about political power. The right are determined to win political power to enforce their ideas. We have to learn and be willing to do whatever it takes to dirty our hands, if you like, in politics in order to seize political power, because only that way will we be able to change the system. And I know that's, that's not what everyone wants to hear, but I'm now more and more convinced about that. You know, uh, the election campaigns we had in December and the Bernie Sanders campaign was all about, you know, being kind to people and decent and doing the right things. We never talked about the international system. I was very frustrated with the Corbyn campaign. They never talked about the international system. But actually, we didn't do what has to be done to win political power, which is not just to talk to everybody who agrees with us, but to talk to those who don't agree with us and bring them over. Bring them over into our camp. And that's hard graft and unpleasant work, but you just have to do that, in my view. And I, I suppose uh, that is what Extinction Rebellion has yeah. sought to do, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and people might say we've been more or less successful at at reaching the hard-to-reach people, but we've certainly reached a lot more people than has been done over the last 30 years yeah, by absolutely. general environmental campaigning. Yeah. And it's so great to have people like you affiliated. You know, I don't, I don't know if you're part of Extinction Rebellion, but certainly I saw you, Anne, on, yeah. the, uh, on Waterloo Bridge on the first day of the oh, October Oh, yeah, rebellion. for sure. No, I was and, there. Um, you know, I think people have redefined, haven't they, what political activism is through Extinction Rebellion, yeah. which is 
which is great. And, and it, it can actually be, as, as Hilary and Dan, you've shown as well, very, very different. You know, what you're doing is very different to what Anne has done. Very complimentary. And I think that's another thing that we have to realise is that the entire media system and the propaganda system needs mm. to be overturned at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. we won't be able to overturn the political system until we've dealt with the media system too yeah. and that we have a really robust independent media who are just interested in looking at the truth. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's not about right and wrong, as Churchill said, but about... Uh, no, it is about right and wrong. It's not about left and right, but about right and wrong, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. sorry about that. We, we, faced, um, we faced the same thing in Australia with the, the Murdoch press and we saw that during... Um, the bushfires as well so yeah it's the same back home i think your next book and um, needs to be on time management for campaigners so, so that we can actually fit all this in just, within just, the time frame we have for the climate emergency to be resolved so uh if you can do that next week that would be lovely <laughs> <laughs> just coming back to Anne, you mentioned earlier that someone asked you to head up a new campaign you didn't actually tell us what your answer was my answer is I'm too old, really. <laughs> but, um, but also my answer was, you know, you guys at the IMF mess up the system and then expect us to all come along and help clear it up afterwards. Just change the system. That's my answer. That's a perfect way to end the, pre- the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank so you much. both. Thank you Everybody very much. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcasts. Your presenters for this Rebel Radio show were Sue Wheat and Seb O'Connell. I'm Marine Vandergeer and look out for our upcoming episodes where Jessica is speaking to Helena Norberg on the economics of happiness and the promise of a green future. Of course, you can find all our previous Extinction Rebellion podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Podomatic. See you next time. This is Rebel Radio.